Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today for a Q&A episode is my colleague, Mr. Tim Perkins. How are you, mate? Very well, Daniel Hasler. How are you going today? Not too bad, mate. And this is um, this is actually the first time you and I have uh, ever recorded in this fashion due yeah. to the uh, the lockdown um, conditions in, in Sydney at the moment. So we are separated by distance, but... Uh, connecting over over uh, the the wi-fi here so hopefully uh, the uh, the wonderful chemistry that we strike up normally <laughs> will be maintained d- digitally as well well the good news is i can still see your handsome face yes we've recorded in a few different places haven't we um but uh mainly at our hq in sydney a couple at my place mm. um but uh, yeah, this is this is the first time we've done it remotely. You in the you at HQ, and me at my place. Indeed, and you know what else? This is the first episode of the Habits of Leadership podcast since we became the number one management <laughs> podcast on Apple iTunes, which is somewhat ironic because we often spend a lot of time discussing the difference between leadership and management. But you know what? If we're, we're top of the pops, we'll we'll take that. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure, but thanks, you know, everyone who's, who listens, everyone who shares, rates, comments, it's it's fantastic. So, And also, thanks to people who have um, sent in questions for today's uh, Q&A. We've, uh, it's, well, it's been a long time between drinks for, for Q&A episodes, but I um, sent a, a message out on Instagram and, uh, on, and on our newsletter, and so we've, we've sifted through them, and we, um, we've come up with what we think are four or five pretty interesting uh, questions and I thought I'd kick off with a question um, to you Tim this actually came via Chris on on my Instagram uh, story and his question was quite simple he said how do you differentiate between mentoring and coaching yeah well I'm fascinated that something like this appears on Instagram I thought Instagram was all bikinis and uh beach shots but um, yeah, that, that's my weekend insta feed that's that's <laughs> typically you know I like to I like to put my bikini shots on on, on the weekend yeah, in the yeah. week it's all business baby this is where you can all be grateful that this is an audio podcast um <laughs> mentoring versus coaching yeah it's a really interesting one because I think a lot of people um bundle the two in together um, and, you know, and there is a, a fairly significant uh, difference. You know, there's very significant differences between the concepts of mentoring and coaching. Um, and I, I would hazard to say that we're much more familiar with the concept of mentoring. And so mentoring, in essence, is the idea of finding somebody who is more experienced and more capable uh, in the thing that you would like to become more experienced and more capable in. Finding someone who has done or is still in the process of doing the thing that you would like to do. Someone who through their um, experiences can share with you some of the pitfalls, some of the things to watch out for, uh, some of the things to consider that maybe haven't considered. Essentially, it's the it's the master-apprentice sort of model. That idea that you 
could benefit from being in the presence of this person, learning from this person, taking some of their wisdom, some of their knowledge. Because in essence, although this isn't really specific, but in essence what you're saying is as the mentee, as the person being mentored, you would like to become like that mentor. You, They have qualities, characteristics, skills, abilities, talents that you would like to develop and emulate so that one day you too could be like them in order that you could perhaps become a mentor for somebody else in the future. So that particular model of mentoring is predicated on the idea that the person who fills the role of the mentor is someone who is very experienced in the field that you want to be mentored in. You know, a really healthy mentoring relationship is predicated on the idea that the mentee, um, the person who is being mentored, selects their own mentor, that they have that opportunity to, you know, find a person who they think will fit really well. And that's one of the real similarities with coaching uh, is that idea of in a really healthy mentoring or coaching situation that the person uh, being coached or mentored actually has volition and choice in the person that they are choosing to be their mentor or coach. Coaching is much more predicated on the idea of questioning, thoughtful questioning, thoughtful listening, um, and helping people find it, what it is that they actually want to do. It doesn't require that you are an expert in that field. And so this is one of the really fundamental differences between coaching and mentoring in that coaching, I could coach somebody um, who is in a field that is totally unrelated to anything that I really have any familiarity with. And in some of the coaching literature, they actually talk about that being an advantage because I don't then uh, suffer from any of the biases or the beliefs about what someone needs to do in order to be successful in that particular thing. And it really allows it to come back to the individual who's being coached as to say, well, these are the things that I'm interested in. These are the things that I'm struggling with. These are the things that I would like to move towards um, and helping them clarify those things and then helping them clarify what it is that they want to do to move towards that. And, you know, obviously coaching is a big part of the work that you and I do, Dan. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you've, you've hit a lot of um, nails on, on the head there. Uh, I think one of the things um, that really differentiates it is the nature of the, um, the, the, the space, so to speak, um, between either the mentor and the mentee and the coach and the coachee. And what I mean by that is sometimes um, organizations might appoint mentors. So you might, rem or, or you might have a, an option of choosing a mentor from within the organization. But a lot of the time, those organizations have chosen specific people to be mentors. Not everyone is a mentor. And the unsaid thing, which everybody knows is the case, is that when someone's put forward as a mentor, the unsaid thing is, it'd be kind of good if you could be like this person. Mm. You know, like this is, this is kind of like our ideal. And if people could be more like this person, then we'd be a better organization. And this is then compounded by the fact that the mentee knows that every time a mentor asks a question along the lines of, so why, why do you do things like that? Or, you know, what, what is your five-year plan, three-year plan, five-minute plan? The mentee is often sitting there going, well, I know you know what I should say here. I know you know the 
right answer in inverted commas and that really stifles that creativity that you were sort of alluding to before that that permission to roam with with thinking and what might be possible and and rather than me trying to conform to perhaps as i say it's often really unsaid it's but it but it's there you know conforming to this ideal version of what people might want me to be or what i think i need to be to fit in here Coaching is a little different in the sense of, as you said, I, I can ask a question of an NRL footballer or of a, a, a CFO or a, or a principal and genuinely not know the answer. And they know I don't know the answer because they know I've never been a CFO, they have, I've never been an NRL footballer or a coach, and I've never been a, a principal. So it's I'm not asking questions to catch them out or I'm not asking questions to sort of... Um, you know set up the play so then I can come over the top and look really smart with a counterpoint really it's about that space as I said before about you know coaching is very much a skill-based you know facilitation You, you need to know how to listen what to listen for and what where to pivot conversations and and you as I say you don't need in fact it's often more helpful to not have extreme expertise in a certain field um, because as you mentioned sometimes that can um, create biases which actually end up creating self-fulfilling prophecies rather than coaching being a real space where people can really explore well, what, what does this mean for me you know what can I learn about myself here and other people and how can I really clearly articulate what it is I, I want as a result of that you know what yeah. it, what are the real challenges for me here and, and, and what do I want on the other side of those challenges so I think when it's used synonymously, as it often is, mentoring and coaching, people are kind of missing the missing the trick. They're missing the trick of, um, you know, often mentoring is based on hierarchy. You know, it's unusual for your your mentor to have less experience, you know, either in years or in, as in age or in years in the job. But a coach can be, you know, any age if they've got the skill set. They can be um, from any domain if they've got the mm. skill set. And, and often having that outside voice, and it sounds like I'm hawking for work here, but you know, having that outside voice often creates the space that these groups are really um, striving for to get yeah. the best out of their people. The word that I, I didn't use in there, Dan, that I'm thinking about now that, that you're uh, talking about this is con- the concept of curiosity. And, and that becomes such a fundamental element of the work that we do in coaching and, and what coaching is all about is that genuine curiosity in what is going on for the coachee. And by challenging and questioning in a, in a genuinely curious way, what, you know, this is where for me the magic of, of coaching starts to happen is because you, and, and this is what you were talking about there as well, is not necessarily being familiar with their particular field. So, the more curious we are as a coach, the more we can delve into what's actually going on for the person, which makes them much more reflective about what's happening for them, which takes them beyond that sort of superficial surface level of their thinking. And so often a coachee will say, oh, wow, yeah, I haven't actually really ever thought about why I do it that way. And then that can be a real light bulb moment, those sort of pivot points that you were talking about. Then then you can start to take that corridor of of thinking with them so that real curiosity as opposed to the mentoring you know for example you know a mentor really there'd be a lot of telling uh in mentoring and and that's a good thing there could could be be, yeah 
and and it could be a really good thing. I do it this way because it's really successful this way because, you know, I suggest that you try this way because. Whereas in coaching, there's very little in the way of suggestion. Very interesting question, very interesting topic. So um, I've got a question for you from another one of our listeners, Ilona, who left us a voice message. Our very first. Our, our very first. first in fact, there's the light flashing there as I look on the on the answer machine here at Cut Through HQ. I might just wander over there and, and see what it says. My question for you is, you guys have been into a lot of schools and worked with a lot of management teams. What do you think you've seen that's been the most effective and meaningful in terms of fostering student wellbeing? Thanks. All right, great question, Alona. Thank you very much. Dan? What do you think? Um, I think um, it's a, it's certainly a question we get asked a lot when we're running workshops or when we're presenting. But it's it is something that people seem to be striving for, and and not just in schools. I might add, like all over the place, um, you know, this focus on well being, and and particularly, I think, in the last eighteen months, um, you know, to two years with the, with the whole pandemic. Um, you know, basically really forcing us to to focus in on on well-being but going to Alona's question specifically around schools um what have I seen work well well I, I'll give you examples of th- things which I think get in the way of things working well um because various um schools that I've been into have fantastic um ideas and initiatives and um some some you know without naming any but some have really um I I think got to the heart of what well-being is all about and some are perhaps still constrained and maybe this goes to what we were talking about in that previous question about they're constrained by some of the biases about what something at school needs to look like you know something for it to happen at school it needs to fit in with the timetable it needs to be taught for example Uh, you know it needs to be taught by teachers and, and and whatnot and um so so here's a couple of thoughts on uh things to i think are worth considering in terms of um, how how do you create an environment, you know, that genuinely nurtures the well-being of young people, as opposed to just talks about it or teaches it or runs activities around it. So, it, the number one consideration that, that I I have is the amount of times people talk to me about uh, whether they're an academic member of staff or they're a well-being or a welfare member of staff. And there's kind of like a line drawn in the sand. And, you know, there are people who are either, as I say, responsible for teaching the academics, and then there are those people who are not only got academic side of things as well, but they are responsible for the teaching of the well-being. And I think that in itself is creating um, silos where they don't need to be. I think it's creating... Um, is creating a false narrative um, around the importance or the place of well-being and 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 performance, for want of a better word, you know, academics. Because I'm going to suggest to you that they're probably two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, that doing well academically enhances well-being, with with some nuance around that. But you know, doing well academically, having a sense of mastery and competence is is good for your well-being and better levels of well-being is good for your academics it's good for your performance so 
when we draw a line between who teaches that stuff or who will talk about that stuff or who even needs to be aware of that stuff, you know, who attends the professional learning training and, and, and whatnot. The other thing that I find quite interesting is with all the best intentions, you know, they'll set time aside from, you know, the, 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 the timetable and, and they might have a 30-minute block or a 40-minute block where they'll teach well-being explicitly you know they'll have well-being classes and a couple of things come up um as a result of doing that one it can come across as well that's just something we do on period one on wednesdays you know that's just a well well-being wednesdays right you know we, we do it period one wednesday and and that's that's your well-being thing I'm not sure that we should only talk about uh, mindset, resilience, um, you know, character strengths, uh, gratitude, you know, um, kindness, empathy. I'm not sure we should just isolate that to individual um, lessons. And the second issue that comes about from timetabling lessons is you have to put teachers on those lessons to teach them. And that often causes problems because a lot of those teachers didn't go into teaching to teach that specific thing. And sometimes um, the impact of those um, lessons, the impact of those well-being lessons probably isn't as deep or as meaningful as it might be because perhaps people haven't really bought into it. Perhaps they don't necessarily have the uh, curiosity or the interest or perhaps the skill set to navigate um, the issues that 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 are you know it seems strange because they're fundamental to being human and yet um, a lot of people would much rather not deal with that particularly you know in, and again we're just focusing on schools at the moment but particularly given that teachers aren't looking for anything else to do they're they're, they're flat out as it is you know so they're flat out teaching not just teaching to be honest they're flat out doing all the other crap that they've been asked to do by departments of education and by you know people who are so excited about you know numbers and data and things like that that you know they're they're actually taken away from their core joy which is teaching the subject they've chosen to teach um and and then you add this on top it often it just feels like something else to do rather than something that's really important so the, the, those are a couple of immediate considerations and, and just one other thing which I've seen which I get really interested by is those schools which open up their um, campuses and, and I'm talking I'm not talking about schools which have got loads of room to spare I'm talking about schools doing it tough in really high needs areas who open up their doors to the community and so there are mental health professionals on site to complement the overworked school counsellor who doesn't have time to see all the kids that they need to see as it is. But they, 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 in some cases, I've actually seen them give space, you know, a demountable to an outside agency who basically just sets up there, uses it as a bit of a base camp, but mm. in part, then it, it is, is, you know, the way they pay their rent, for want of a better word, is to help the school, help the kids. Um, and and I've found that really interesting to see with with mental health organisations, with even with um, you know health services, GPs, um, dent, dental um, services, c coming in and having a place on on site. Like you know, school isn't just part of a community, but the school is the community itself. And I think when we realise that well being, and this is a very Instagrammy cliche, but when we realise that well being begins with we. And we realise the importance that well-being isn't a programme. It's not something we do. 
well-being is, uh, it, to be fair, it's complemented by those things when they're done well. But fundamentally, it's about that sense of belonging. and It's about that sense of having other people around us who we know um, have got our back. Um, and, and I think right now, you know, in these current times, I think that's probably more pertinent than ever. It's interesting, Dan, isn't it? Because, you know, we've we've both worked in multiple schools, both as teachers and now in a role of facilitating things for schools. And, you know, often teachers are tasked with running these wellbeing programs, as you've said, and, and um, you know, resentment can build up or uh, lack of skill can become apparent. And, you know, really in these situations, we need the right people with the right training and skills and with the right intention to be sharing these programs. And it, it just makes me think of a parallel situation. I, I ride a motorbike and when I was learning to ride uh, a bike about 15 years ago, you had to do a course called the Stay Upright course. And that course is absolutely prescriptive, lockstep. You know, there is a booklet and every motorbike teacher uh, in the country uses this exact same booklet and goes through it word for word, verbatim from a very well-structured and planned uh, course. And there's a very specific reason for that and it works really well because the people who are the teachers are doing it volitionally, um, they're skilled in it um, and they have the intention of keeping people alive. And so the reason that it is so lockstep is because it's all about safety um, and keeping people alive, thus the name Stay Upright, which is the course. Similar programs that might be around well-being or resilience in schools, for example, the, the people who are tasked with implementing those courses aren't necessarily the people who are skilled in it, aren't necessarily the people who want to do it. And, you know, um, you get problematic outcomes as a result of that. And so finding ways where there's real buy-in from the people who are expected to deliver these courses uh, and skill development for them, uh, because often, you know, in schools, because of the madness of schools, here's this thing, we haven't really got any training for you, just go and deliver it. It's really important. Go and deliver it to the kids. And, you know, you can hear problems with that straight away. The thing is, though, even if they do, even if they do have the training, right? Because there are lots of uh, examples where you do you do get the training, and people, yeah. they, you know, schools invest a lot of time and money into the training. What's often missing is is that the experiencing of it. So, you know, what that's why we're quite deliberate. We're working with um, a couple of schools at the moment as they develop their well being um, approaches, and, and and our model is well, we're not going to come in and do any training yet what we might do is we'll we'll explore some of the concepts with you so, and and you know we'll throw out some some ideas but then as Ooh. you alluded to then Tim we, we ask who's interested in 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 digging into this and then we put them through a coaching program based on that not a coaching program so they can go and teach it a coaching program so they can genuinely experience what it feels like when you start using these, you know, evidence-based approaches to enhance subjective well-being, what does it feel like to know what your strengths are or what your hidden strengths are? What does it feel like to express gratitude in an authentic way to somebody who means a lot to you? What does it mean to rethink your mindset around accomplishment? And how does that reframe your outlook on life and your relationships with your partner and your kids and your ex-partner? And, and once people... Once the light bulb goes on there, and that takes time, you don't do that in a day, right? That takes time. 
once you get those people and go, yeah, this is really some good stuff, then we go, okay, now let's see what it looks like as a program for your kids in your school. Mm. A lot of the time what happens is people come in and they explore the concepts in a day if they're lucky because maybe there's a, another half-day workshop that they've got plugged in as well that they need to do. But let's say let's say we're generous and we give it a day, right? And then they're expected to go and do something with it straight away with kids. And and they miss this piece about, well, I don't, I, to be honest, you know, I, I, they can get it cognitively. I think that's the point. They can They can get it intellectually. But until people feel it emotionally and genuinely feel that sense, then it's really hard to convey it with the authenticity and integrity that they need to for it to be effective. Um, you know, you think about this, you, you, again, let's stay in the school situation. You Typically, you know, I'll speak as a PE teacher, the reason I was passionate about, and, and English to, to, as well, the reason I was interested, the reason I was excited about teaching those things is because I knew what it felt like to benefit from playing sport. You know, I knew what it felt like to benefit from being physically active. I knew what it felt like to benefit from reading a great book that could take you to, you know, far off places or even write a book or write a poem. You know, I knew that. I felt that. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. And yeah, yeah, I, I kind of understand the benefits of, of, of physical activity. I understand the benefits of reading. No, no. I feel the benefits of it. I live the benefits of mm. it. And, and you, you, you know, you think about that in 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 schools you, you see problems arise when sometimes teachers are kind of shoehorned into teach subject areas out of their areas of speciality because of you know w- uh, because of need you know we just simply don't have enough teachers in certain areas yeah they get the the they get the key points you know and then then they're expected to go and teach it and and i'm not saying that they do a bad job not at all but what i am saying is i bet it's a challenge for them yeah. And I bet it's a real challenge for them, not just cognitively, but also emotionally, to connect with the work. I bet if they could wave a magic wand and not do it, they probably would. Yeah. Our next question, again from Insta, and again, uh, no bikinis on this one, is from Matt. And he asks, and I think this is probably quite a, a timely uh, question given the current scenario, but he asks, how do you remain both an optimist and a realist? Yeah. And I don't know if he's asking you specifically, Perko. <laughs> said, Perko, how do you do it? Because you do it so well. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question because, and as you said, Dan, you know, the timing of this, and, you know, there's no surprise in the timing of this, we're in really, really interesting, challenging times where we're all being challenged, you know, in, in uh, states, cities all over Australia, all over the world where people are have been put into a situation that is uncertain and uncomfortable and um, it, obviously it's important to be optimistic uh, because we don't want to fall in a heap of pessimism. Um, but there is a really nuanced, you know, question here around the idea of realism as well. How do we keep being realistic and what's the purpose, what's the value of being realistic? Because I think we often think about optimism in a really positive light. You know, we encourage the people around us. We encourage kids. We encourage anyone who's a bit down, you know, you've got to be a bit more optimistic as if optimism is the panacea for all things. Um, And there is no doubt whatsoever that having a fundamentally optimistic outlook on life can be very beneficial for you and for the people around you and uh, certainly encourage that. But it does need to be uh, balanced with a sense of realism. 
So, um, you know, one of the things that we're experiencing at the moment is the idea of lockdowns and and how what happens, you know, uh, in relation to a lockdown. You know, where where being spoken to by politicians and community leaders, health experts around the idea of, you know, this is how we need to behave in a particular lockdown. We're hoping that it will only take this long. We're hoping we can open things up again in this time. And so it pays to be optimistic about that. But it there's an interesting paradox here, Dan, which I know you're familiar with, um, that is this idea of could we be doing ourselves a disservice? Could we be uh, creating a problem for ourselves by suggesting that we optimistically believe that something will happen in a time frame that has been dreamt up or hoped for by either us or someone else who's informed us, uh, and that that could have a, a contrary uh, outcome for us. So some really interesting work um, was done around this through a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, who was writing uh, about this guy, James Stockdale, who was a uh, a prisoner of war in Vietnam for seven years and he was asked what was it that sort of helped him survive through such awful you know he was tortured and had an absolutely terrible time and over a sustained period of time and he was asked how did you come out of this and who who did was it the optimists that came out of this and he quite counterintuitively said that no it it the optimists were the ones who generally died in these situations because what they would do is they would set themselves timelines of hopefully by Easter we'll be out. It'll all be good if by Easter we're out. Easter came and went. Hopefully by Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving came and went. Hopefully by Christmas, Christmas came and went. Uh, and then people gave up the ghost. And he said that the the number of people who that there was a, a, an, a spike in deaths between Christmas and New Year's because people had set themselves, I can hold on until, I can hold my breath, metaphorically speaking, until. But that when that optimism wasn't didn't become a reality, uh, they lost hope. Um, and what Jim Stockdale talked about was this idea of hoping for the for the best, but acknowledging and preparing for the worst. And that's where he really brought in the realism to counterbalance. The optimism in these situations and part of the problem with being too optimistic about situations that are over which we have very little control um, is that it can encourage us to disregard negative emotions as well which are a really important factor so for us now through COVID I think we're you know particularly in places that have been in sustained lockdown like you and I are in Dan recognizing that ebbs and flows of our emotions starting to see that you know we we do get down at certain times in relation to having our liberties taken away from us and having the confusion and uncertainty not being able to see family not being able to do the things that we were comfortable doing previously and by disregarding negative emotions we're really disregarding a a very important part of our whole emotional landscape so it, it's really important to bring in that realism and, and to really counterbalance it with the optimism and say, yeah, well, this is unfortunate. This is the way that it is. And it might be like this for a sustained period of time. I think I'm thinking back to uh, episode 54 where um, Tal Ben-Shahar was on and speak, he, he has this um, concept of, you know, giving yourself permission to be human 
mm. which I think speaks to what you were talking about there about recognizing the the the, the ebbs and flows of the human experience you know in 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 the best of times right in the best of times you you you, you're gonna um experience negative emotions and yet a lot of the time perhaps because of um i don't know we're constantly comparing ourselves to others on social media or whatever it might be we kind of berate ourselves for feeling you know what have we got to be upset about what are we got to be you know um anxious about down about and that's in the best of times and we, we feel like that and and but recognizing that, of course, you're going to feel like that in 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 times like this, and and being okay with that, recognizing that you know, to to be less motivated, to be a little less happy, for want of a better word, um, you know, that's that's all part and parcel of it. I think for me, um, the, the importance is this. So to, I can be, I can be absolutely be realistically optimistic in the sense of I know that this will improve. I know that this mm. is going to end. That's both optimistic and it's realistic. What's not, what's optimistic but not realistic is thinking, oh, you know what? I reckon the prime minister will come on the the radio or the TV in a couple of weeks and say, you know what? We're all done. We're sweet. Away you go. That's unrealistic. And and what happens is, and I'm seeing this with people I know and 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 the way they talk about it is that they're they're pinning their hopes on daily press conferences, yeah. and 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 they're getting down when the numbers keep going up. Because on what for whatever reason they're hoping that the numbers are going to come down, and that's where it starts becoming problematic. Because the more you pin your hope on a daily news conference, and then it gets squashed, that's not dissimilar. And I think we've got to be really careful, as you as you were there, Tim. We're not comparing this to being a prisoner of war in Vietnam, but there are some interesting um, similarities in. In that, you know, if you set yourself these milestones, for example, you know, we'll be out by such and such, we'll be out by such and such, and then we're not. I wonder how many times that has to happen. Yeah. I wonder how many press conferences you have to watch before you start to lose hope, before you start becoming overly pessimistic. And I actually think if you're realistic, you know, optimism is actually often far more realistic than pessimism. Pessimism says, oh, we'll never get out of this. Mm. Well, of course we will. You know, things will never be the same again. Well, whether they are or not, maybe it'll be better. Yeah. You know, and 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 so I think um, for me, what's interesting is as people pin their hopes on daily press conferences or or whatever else, right? I mean, we're just locating this in in the pandemic, but it could be anything. You pin your hopes on something and and think that that will improve it. And when you realize it doesn't and you start to lose this hope, what also then starts to happen is you start losing motivation to do things. You start becoming less resilient. You start, relationships start getting damaged. Your happiness levels start to drop. So a better way, I believe, and I actually put this out in my newsletter this week and I got some really nice feedback from it from various people, is this, you know, know, know that this will get better because it will. You know, it might not be next week. In fact, it won't be next week and it probably won't be next month, but it will get better. And instead of putting your time and energy into the things you can't control, like looking at the case numbers or hypothesizing what you would do if you were running the country or you were running the state, forget all of that. Waste of time, waste of energy, making you feel like shit. Instead, focus on things that will improve your motivation your resilience, your relationships, and your levels of happiness. So really, you know, and, and th- this requires um, 
a, a fair bit of discipline because it's hard, particularly if for 18 months you've been operating on, on, on a different system. But that's how you remain optimistic and realistic, by knowing that things will improve but recognising there are certain constraints, but then doing your best to operate within those constraints for the betterment of yourself and those people around you. I, I think you're, you're really touching on some interesting stuff there, Dan, and I think that um, optimism needs to be tempered by realism, but also it's actually shored up by realism. You know, as you're suggesting there, being realistic about what's going to happen is actually probably reasonably aligned to optimism in that... You know, it, it's unrealistic to think that we will get out of the corona situation and then everything will be sweet because we've only got to remember what happened immediately prior to corona in, you know, on the east coast of Australia anyway. You know, bushfires, floods immediately preceding this. Um, and, you know, I remember back to another episode that we did uh, with the clinical psychologist, Andrew Fuller, and talking about the impact of the bushfires over summer of 2019 2020 um and how kids were going to respond to that uh and at the very end of that interview we just started to hear about the coronavirus and i remember saying to andrew you know maybe we'll get you back on if this turns out to be something uh we'll get you back on and talk a bit more about how we're all coping with that so other things will occur as well but being realistic really shores up our opportunities to be optimism and Realism also helps us to be less brittle, less fragile in the face of the inevitable adversities that life throws up. At the moment, we're focusing on corona, but, you know, all of our listeners have got their own rich lives, all of which are presenting their own dramas and issues. Um, so being realistic about those things rather than pessimistic um, really helps us to build up that resilience and, and to be less brittle and fragile in the face of difficult times. Final question time, I think, Tim. Yes. Um, this one is um, another one from um, Instagram, and it's from a chap called Steve who contacted me to say, um, with his leadership team, they actually use episodes of this podcast, uh, which I thought was quite cool. They use episodes of this podcast as stimulus for their leadership to then talk about the issues um, that, that, that come up in there. And... He's also interested in getting a copy of my new book, uh, The Act of Leadership, and he wants to know, and I, I, dead, I promise this isn't a plug, I promise this isn't a plant, but um, his question is, um, how do you suggest we use your new book for developing my leadership team? Perko, you've read the book. What, what do you reckon? Is, he, is, is there any value in, in this Best. at all? Or, 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 would he, or are there other books he should be thinking about? <laughs> oh, look, is, are there any other books even on the market these days? This is a <laughs> out and out bestseller. Um, no, look, it's, uh, it's, it's great to hear that people want to um, use your book, Dan, in a really practical way. And, you know, you've called it a playbook um, and that's a really – important part of what this is all about because you know if people you know you've got it's the act of leadership a playbook for leading with humility clarity and purpose it's not a novel it's not something that you've got to read from start to finish um, and different people are going to access it in different ways to best help them and their organizations so one of the things that you've done uh, here Dan is is to develop a really useful um, website that goes with this. First of all, it's uh, it's very easily navigated website, and 
you've got information in here about every single chapter of the book. Uh, you've made videos um, that go with each chapter to help people navigate what they're going to do with it. Um, we Tell us a bit about the website, Dan. I mean, that, that might really help in response to this question here. How do people, you know, use this well? Yeah, so the um, the website activeleadership.com um, has a what, what I've called the Leaders Learning Hub, which um, any anyone can uh, just sign up for. It's entirely free. And as you say, each chapter essentially has its own little place on there. There's a little provocation video. There's um, extended podcast interviews with the people who are featured in the book. Um, there's then follow-on questions um, to dig into um, you know what it what it might mean for for, for you and uh, and your team, and then there's also downloadable resources um, and and further frameworks and things that you could actually um, apply, and and you know that's that's one way of, of using it. The book itself is designed um, as a, as essentially thirteen coaching sessions. So the idea being that uh, through each chapter, it presents. A, a different concept that in and of itself you could read in isolation but if you read it in its entirety it kind of builds on on each one and the coaching lens that we use here serves to help you develop a new insight about yourself or your team your environment your relationships but then it challenges you to declare an intention do you want to do something with that and as a result of deciding that you do want to do something with that, then the coaching methodology is designed to help you come up with some uh, practical steps that you can take. Some could be quite small steps. Some could be really huge, wide-ranging um, you know, changes of procedure, changes of policy, whatever. But the point of it is that if, when it's done well, is that those next steps serve to provide further insight to create further intention, to create further steps. So it, it's kind of this virtuous um, spiral. So th to go into Steve's question, you know, how do we, um, s uh, how might we use you know, the book with the team? I think, you know, with some intention, I think is, is, my, um, is, is my thinking there. Because, you know, it, it's one thing to have a conversation about, um, about ideas, it's another to have a conversation and decide, oh, yeah, we, sh we should do something about that. And then it's another thing, again, to actually then step into that, lean into that work and say, okay, well, let's try and do something in the short term, mid-term, mid long term that then we can check back in with to see, um, you know, what new insights we have as a result of that. I think I've been interested to hear some feedback, uh, you know, where people said, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I finished your book in a weekend. Um, you know, or it's such a quick read, and I'm and and you know, I take that actually as a, a compliment in one way. I mean, you know, I've communicated things in a way which isn't in a dense way, but on the other hand, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, that it's good that you've read it, but really the work is now to be done. You know, the value of the book, I think, is in what happens after you've read mm. what 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 conversations take place what ref first of all what reflections take place with the individual and then as a result of that what conversations do you have with your team and as a result of that what new norms do you establish what new actions do you take and so yeah i think rather than thinking oh well you know doing a chapter every every week or doing um 
an episode every week, whatever it might be. I mean, feel free. You know, I, I feel a bit weird saying don't don't use the book this way, um, but but you know, use it how you want. But I think the more intentionality that you put around it, rather than just thinking, oh well, th- this is a good read. This will this will fill some time, or this is I found this interesting. Um, you know, really saying, okay, well, zero in on some stuff and create the time and the space to have something which creates those three things: insight intentionality and and action yeah uh so for example dan if i look at the leaders learning hub uh, through the website here i you know i said one of the chapters is about change in response to steve's question you know what do we do with that how do we how do we utilize that yeah so um so many um and every organization every group of people can can think about a time when a change hasn't um hasn't occurred and yet what tends to happen is people will just try harder at change you know they'll, they'll think for some reason um they'll they'll get it right this time so the idea here if we think about the insight piece is that the, that, that chapter specifically sets up a few of the not not it's not an exhaustive list but it sets up a few of the main issues as to why change doesn't happen and then just with a couple of uh, provocations you know if you if once they've reflected on well does that apply here for whatever change initiative that you, you might be thinking on whether it's small or or huge saying okay well do you want to do something different this time okay and then here's a few ideas that you can have as a like a, as a jumping off point as a start point so it'll give you a better chance of um getting you know closer to the change outcome that, that that you're looking for you know so simple things around um simple ideas not easy to do but simple ideas around you know how do we really communicate with our people how do we really get authentic buy-in rather than just trying to encourage or coerce um people to to get on the bus how do we help them you know we talk a bit about how do we help them build the bus so um it, it, it yeah as i say it's um it, it's it's designed that people can access it in in different ways, but I think coming at it with a real sense of let's do something with this would be the best way. <laughs> I think that people will get the most out of the book rather than just seeing it as a bedside read. Activeleadership dot com. That's uh, that's where people can find all the information about your book, and they can access the the opportunity to purchase the book online through the website as well. A really interesting bunch of questions today, and it was good to be back in the Q and A saddle. Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know we'll we'll try and uh, make these more regular. So if if you do have any uh, questions or challenges that you'd like us to chat about, whether it's leadership, mindset, motivation, you know, you, you go th- back through all the episode lists on on wherever you get your podcasts and see the themes we talk about. If you've got any questions or challenges about that, then head over to habitsofleadership dot com and just click on the podcast page there, and you can send us your message. Um, via email or you can be brave like Alona was and send us a a voice message and we can get your dulcet tones on the airways or of course if you follow me on Instagram at Dan Hasler then uh, every now and then I'll be putting a call out for questions on my story there but um, if you found that worthwhile if you found it interesting and we're certainly getting plenty of feedback um, at the moment along those lines which is really really nice as uh, Tim and I are plugging away here uh, putting these podcasts out but if you found it interesting then there's a fair chance that someone you know will find it interesting too so please share it as far and as wide as you can and also while you're listening why not right now leave a little rating or a comment 
and make sure you've subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen. But until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. Cheers, Perko. Cheers, Dan. Take care. Take it easy.